0: Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, "'You're exacting interest, each from his brother.' And I held held a great assembly against them and said to them, "'We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers "'who have been sold to the nations. "'But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us.' They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, "'The thing you are doing is not good.' Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them and we will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them, for their daily ration, forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lauded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God." I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people.
1: Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much um, for uh, being here with us. Thank you that we are able to meet together. Thank you that we are able to listen to your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we do that. Lord, may we listen well. May the words that are said be of you and of your spirit. And may we go away from here changed and excited about the gospel. We pray these things in your strong name. Amen. Now, I remember um, as a child growing up in Pembrokeshire, watching my dad starting many, many DIY projects around the house. And I can imagine that many of you are in that position. My dad is particularly good with his hands. He has, in fact, practically rebuilt the house that we grew up in. But quite often, I remember, getting to the end of a Saturday, the day in which these DIY projects usually took place, and it would be getting dark, and mum is just about ready with the dinner, and we'd hear a yell of exasperation from underneath the sink, or from behind a wall, or through a bit of piping. And we all knew that the quick five-minute job that Dad had embarked on had not gone quite according to plan. And quite often, Dad would sit down at the table, sweat on his brow, muck everywhere, and he'd take his glasses off and he'd rub his face and he'd say, I'm being opposed. Everything is against me. I didn't know it was going to be so hard, etc., etc. It was always quite amusing. But what stays with me more than the memory of the difficulty that Dad often had in getting the job done is the memory of Dad after that evening meal, pushing his chair back from the table, putting on his glasses, and getting back to the job. And he always finished. And in ways that are earth-shatteringly more important than my dad building a house and him not giving up against difficulty, the passages that we find ourselves in in Nehemiah over these few weeks are all about opposition opposition here against the work of the building the walls of Jerusalem and not giving up when that opposition hits. What we see in Nehemiah is a leader who does not give up in the face of this incredible opposition, but who metaphorically pushes his chair back from the table, stands up, put his glasses on, and gets back to the job. And we're not talking about bricks and mortar here, are we, really? We know that. Remember the main theme of Nehemiah that Robin has been repeating to us every week. In response to God's gracious deliverance and trusting his promises and in his provision, God's people are to prayerfully submit to God's word and to work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. The building of the walls of Jerusalem is not to be equated with my dad building a house or necessarily even us moving into a church building, but it is a direct application to the rebuilding and fortifying and reestablishing the church of Christ in our community today. Just as the building of the walls of Jerusalem was the visible sign of the community of God here in Israel being rebuilt and fortified and reestablished. And in seeking this spiritual rebuilding, <clears throat> this spiritual reformation here for us in Edinburgh, in Scotland, in the world, we will face opposition. That's a guarantee, the Bible tells us. That's a certainty. The work will be hard. We will be under attack and difficulty from within and without the church. That's promise. And whereas Dad's difficulty in finishing a DIY job always seemed to come as a surprise to him, when we head into gospel work, we should not be taken by surprise. We are to expect in our seeking kingdom growth in Edinburgh exactly what Nehemiah and the people of God come up against here. But like Nehemiah, we are also exhorted to never give up. As Robin said last week, The principle of these passages is that opposition is inevitable, but the work gets done. And all of this is because the devil who hates Jesus, who does not want the church to win, he will do his utmost to make sure that charmers, you, me, the staff team, Robin, the elders, all fail. But as we will see, Jesus is far more powerful. Please keep your Bibles open. Um, at the page that we're in, um, page four 400 oh 401. And uh, you'll follow the points on your handout as well. Feel free to follow that and take notes. As we hit our first point, this is what we see in Nehemiah 5 and 6. Firstly, internal problems within the community of God that threaten the work. Let's just read 5, 1 to 5 together again to get an idea of what's going on here. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers... For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. It seems, doesn't it, that the people who are living in the city and the surrounding areas of of Judah are facing financial hardship and in a time of famine, And so a great outcry comes up from the people against their brothers, against their fellow Jews, against people working on the wall. There is genuine discontent. There is division within the community of God. And this is for a number of different reasons. We can see them, can't we? verse 2, families wanting their men back from the wall so that more work can be put into getting food. Some people feel the wall has become perhaps a preoccupation to the community in the time of real hardship. When those working on the war should, should be focusing maybe on getting food for their family instead. That makes sense. But worse than that, verse 3. We see that the people are mortgaging their property to those wealthier than they are in order just to make ends meet. Either to buy food or to be able to pay the tax of the Persians by borrowing money. On top of this, because of the incredible debt that families are accruing, people are having to put their own children into slavery. It's a truly punishing time to be in Israel. It makes sense that there is an outcry. But more than it being a time of hardship, the greater thing of note is that this is not how the covenant community of God is meant to be with each other. All the way through the law, there are two bedrock principles that form the basis of how the covenant community is meant to work. The first concerns what we would call usury or the exacting of a punishing interest on a loan. In Deuteronomy 23, we see that 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 is forbidden in all its forms. And the second concerns slavery. And although slavery to pay off debt was allowed under the Old Testament law, it could only be for a certain time, and the slave had to be treated as if they were part of the family, It it was meant to be an option for help and release, not for bondage and destitution. But in this passage in Nehemiah, we see that both these bedrock principles of covenant community were being either abused or entirely broken. Because of this abuse, there is division and there is discontent in the land, and it is hindering the work of the rebuilding. Indeed, the people of God don't look like the people of God anymore. And that is exactly what Nehemiah says to them. Look at how he deals with this situation in verse 6 onwards. Nehemiah calls it exactly as he sees it. He reacts immediately. He takes the nobles and the officials and brings charges against them. But note, not only does he call them out on the interest that they're exacting, which lines their pockets and leaves the people who they should be looking after in destitution, but he also points out to them the incredible irony in all of this. Verse eight. We have just escaped from slavery. Yet what do we see? The people of God being put back under slavery again by their own brothers, by yourselves. That's what he's saying. In short, what was the point in leaving Persia if we were we were just going to enslave ourselves? You're hypocrites. Again, it's an accusation that Jesus is always lobbying against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the New Testament. You claim to be the leaders and rulers of the people of God, but they are often the last people that you help. But not only are these leaders being hypocritical in the way that they treat the people of God who should be free, Nehemiah also points out that this activity is bringing in the taunts of the people around the land. This antagonism, this breaking of covenant law, this enslaving of a free people, this hypocrisy is making us look like idiots in front of people. In front of the people that we should be a light to. In front of the people that we should be outclassing with the way that we live and treat each other. The hilarity that this brings, Nehemiah is saying, when we claim to know a good God who is going to save us and help us, When in reality, all anyone else sees is us enslaving each other. What do they make of God in that light? He's at best an idiot, or at worst vindictive. Bringing us out of slavery just so that we can enslave ourselves. That is not what the people of God should be like. And it is causing division, discontent, and disunity. Disunity which in turn is causing derision and taunting from God's enemies, which in turn is ultimately disrupting the work of spiritual rebuilding and progress. And before we get to see what Nehemiah does about this, is it not important to turn the spotlight from the people of God here in the text to the people of God here in this room? Because the important question to ask is, are we living in a church community in which there is gross inequality? Inequality that we as Christians and fellow brothers and sisters, to use the language of Nehemiah, that we are not combating or dealing with. Now, I'm not just talking about the inequality of poverty, though that is absolutely what we need to be aware of in our church. But are we sharing resources well? Are we giving of our money and our time well? Are we economically engaging with each other well, looking out for each other? Are we sharing well with each other? Am I aware of situations in the church which I really could help out with, but I just don't? Either assuming someone else will pick it up or not wanting to make myself uncomfortable. Do I actually view the people around me in the church as brothers and sisters? People to love and help? Or do I view them as things to be used? Do I treat people as if they owe me something? Do I give my time, my money, etc., begrudgingly, hoping and expecting for the favor to be returned, holding it against them if it isn't? Am I metaphorically exacting interest on my gifts and my talents and my help? my volunteer work for the church or my help for that person, does it all come at a price? Is that how we're living together in community? I'm not saying we are. I've heard of some incredible things that have been incredibly generous over the past few months. But are we in danger of doing that if we are not careful? If we do not treat each other and love each other well? If that is how we're living, then there's no different to the way that the covenant community in Judah were treating each other. Are we looking after each other because we love each other and because we fear God, as Nehemiah says here? Because if we're not doing this, we are not looking like what our covenant community should look like. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they gave everything in common. A tiny pinpoint of light into what the local church really should look like. Something that the local church should aspire to be. But this is not just to be taken as a line of social justice, where we're living out of each other's pockets and helping the poor, as much as that is absolutely what we should be doing. But there is a greater purpose behind living like this. Because if we're not looking like this, not only do we not look like what the church should look like, but the disunity and the inequality within that community, that it brings a hindrance to the gospel. The anxiety and the angst caused by difficult relationships in the church, the demanding of rights and the assumption of being repaid, the feeling that sections of the church are being treated differently or unfairly, That takes away our united front to stand in side by side for the gospel. It's obvious. We're not looking outwards, wanting to preach the good news of Jesus, wanting to create a church community where people are loved and nurtured to faith. Instead it turns us in on one another, more bothered about ourselves against other people. That's of enormous hindrance to the gospel. It is of enormous hindrance to the rebuilding of this wall here in Nehemiah. Are people going to give up and walk away from it? If we're not on guard in the area of our relationships with each other within our church community, then we are in danger of walking away from gospel work. In danger of walking away from what the church should look like. In danger of walking away from the work that the church should be engaged in, united spiritual reformation. And so, what does Nehemiah do? Well, he does two things. First, he puts it right. Verse 10. Let us abandon this exacting of interests, says Nehemiah, and let's do what we always should have done from the start. Return to the people this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Nehemiah puts it right, simply and decisively. Nehemiah's leadership is quite striking, isn't it? It is strong, decisive, willing to confront the leaders of Israel, unafraid of the difficult conversations. He is strategic. In verse 7, he takes counsel with himself, meaning he is thoughtful, not rash. He doesn't panic. He doesn't fly off the handle. He thinks about what needs to happen, and he puts a plan in place. This doesn't surprise us when we look at the person of Nehemiah. He is absolutely the opposite to the other leaders of Israel. This is what a leader of God's people should look like. But not only does he call them out in terms of the law and set these nobles straight, but the second thing he does is he leads by example, verse 14. When I was appointed governor, my brothers and I did not eat the food allowance of the governors as the former governors did. They didn't lead like the others, they led humbly, being the first to sacrifice what was entitled to them. Verse 15, even as the servants of the former governors lorded it over the people, I did not, because I feared God. Nehemiah led, fearing God more than he desired comfort for himself. But finally and importantly, verse 16, I also persevered in the work of the wall. Nehemiah leads by example and he does so with remarkable gospel vision. Because he deals with this internal division, with this internal problem that threatens to break apart the people of God by not just meeting their need with incredible love, But by also maintaining his focus on getting the wall built. This antagonism and law breaking in the covenant community is disrupting the work of kingdom building, but Nehemiah won't be swayed from that job. So Nehemiah never gives up on building work, and he makes this people's problem his first priority. It is important to be able to take the example of leadership that Nehemiah displays here and not just apply it to our leaders as much as those of us in leadership can take example, but this is how we are meant to live with each other, humbly, patiently, in service to others, not demanding what is owed, and always living and working together with our focus not on myself, but on the wall, on the work of the gospel. And this is really important. Because if ever there is a time in our church life when we are going to turn on each other, or we are going to truly buckle, or we are going to start falling apart and falling into disunity, when we start to take our eyes away from the battle with sin and holiness, it will be when we are most engaged and seemingly most successful in gospel work and spiritual reformation. Now, more than ever, as we start to seek an exciting new period of church life in an exciting new building with new staff members coming on board, with a new fervor for evangelism, with money wonderfully, gloriously coming in from every part of the church family, with everyone from across the ages and stages of this room engaged in the work of the church, we need to be really on our guard. We cannot take our eyes off the wall. We cannot afford to take our foot off the gas in terms of our struggle with sin. We cannot afford to settle back and enjoy the ride. We have to be extra vigilant. We must not take our eyes off Jesus Christ. Ought we not walk now in the fear of our God, says Nehemiah. Because if we're honest... The devil doesn't need to go through trouble of bringing external opposition against the community that is going through spiritual progress. Oh, no. We can bring it all crashing down by ourselves if we want to. And Satan would want to. He'd really like that. And so Satan will be getting at us by removing our focus from the work of the gospel and the word of Jesus and by averting our eyes to ourselves and our selfishness. Which brings us back to the wall and to our next point. Because does it not make sense that the devil's next tactic against spiritual reformation is to take out the leader? And that is exactly what we see next. Point two, opposition against the leader that threatens the work. We see three things that happen to Nehemiah in this next bit of chapter 6. And first is this suspect invitation to dialogue. Let's just read that together, 6-1-4. to four. And then I'll very quickly go what's going on in the rest of the chapter. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates... Sambalet and Geshem sent to, me, sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together at Hakefirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, it's obvious what's going on here, isn't it? Despite the internal issue in the camp that threatens the building of the wall, thanks to Nehemiah and the people of God and the hand of God on them, the work has continued. The wall is moving at a good pace, and it is in fact now at a stage where all the holes are closed up and the city is almost fortified, bar the doors and the gates. And because of this, because of this enormous rebuild, you can imagine, with the city of Jerusalem now beginning to literally take shape again as the people are looking on, the enemies of Israel begin to launch their most devastating attacks, and all of them against Nehemiah. And note what Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem do. They try to subtly reason with Nehemiah. Verse 2 of chapter 6, Come, Nehemiah, let us meet together, they say come and sit at the head table with us you can imagine it being said we we just want to chat now dialogue can be a good thing dialogue with those who oppose gospel work can be very productive we have seen that in this church very often it can disarm our opponents in relation to their misconceptions about us sometimes it can influence them to change And dialogue can bring a degree of wisdom, tact, diplomacy, dignity to how we articulate our convictions. In fact, sometimes as evangelicals, we lack credibility precisely because of our lack of willingness to engage with people. But all of that being said, we need to be realistic. And we need to see, as Nehemiah does through this suspect invitations to dialogue... Right the way through the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah praying when he finds himself in a difficult situation. He prays for wisdom. We see it stated in this chapter, the end of verse 9 and verse 14. It's reasonable for us to assume that he prays here for wisdom as to how he responds to this invitation. And he has a very discerning response at the end of verse 2. But they intended to do me harm. Verse 3, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop it? There's a practical element in Nehemiah's response not to get drawn into pointless dialogue when there's work to be done. But there is a sinister element. He smells a rat. He sees this as a trap. And this tactic is still used today. How many times in the life of a gospel church A church that is working hard for the kingdom, that is beginning to make inroads into society, that is beginning to see conversions, that is distinctive and different. A church that sticks to biblical orthodoxy and is seemingly not swayed by public rhetoric or religious liberalism a church that makes a stand for orthodoxy... in a society whose benchmark is compromised... how many times have we seen leaders of those churches... being approached by others from the world... or more pertinently from other groups of weak churches... with the offer to dialogue? Happens all the time. We've seen it happen in Scotland and the UK... over the past five years. For every leader of a church... that has made a stand on gospel integrity in a society of stunning gospel compromise, have not most of them been asked to reason with those who don't agree with them? In order for them not to make that gospel stand. In order for them to keep preoccupied with national committees or other matters of important business. For a leader of a church, this is really desperately difficult to deal with. More than most of us will ever know. The temptation to water down the gospel for the sake of local national harmony can be enormous. Come, let's meet together. What subtly dark words they are. No, says Nehemiah. Why should I stop the work? Why should the solid work of the gospel stop for the sake of meaningless dialogue? Or I will be in harm's way, either to bend and compromise or to be taken out completely. No, says Nehemiah. I'm not, I'm not up for that. But it doesn't stop there for Nehemiah because secondly, he is slandered mercilessly. Verse 6 to 9, let's read that together. 5 to 5 to 9 in the same way sambalet for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand in it was written it is reported among the nations and geshem also says it that you and the jews intend to rebel that is why you are building the wall and according to these reports you wish to become their king and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in jerusalem there is a king in judah and now the king will hear these reports so now come and let us take counsel together Nehemiah is slandered he is slandered publicly the reason this letter is an open letter is because open letters were allowed and indeed intended to be read by anyone it was in short a public document it is almost certain due to the contents that many people would have read this and the conversations would have already been passed on about what Nehemiah was getting up to it's not a secret first let's chat now you're a seditionist You're building a fortress to rebel against the king, Nehemiah. He's going to find out. Stop this madness. That's a good tactic. In fact, we've actually seen it work 20 years earlier in Ezra, which is why Artaxerxes banned the same planned work on the wall and the temple before Nehemiah came along. You can read that in Ezra chapter 4. Can you see how subtle and malevolent this is? personal attack, personal misrepresentation, how tempting it would be for Nehemiah to run scared, to agree to the invitation to dialogue and then compromise or worse. But Nehemiah's response is one of measured stature. His dignity and conviction stand in such stark contrast to the manipulating tactics of those who oppose him. Verse 8, Then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you say have been done you are inventing them out of your own mind. There are times when we have to say against those who oppose us, that's just a lie. But that takes real courage. And Nehemiah might genuinely be afraid here. He says this, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And so he prays. But now, oh my God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah does not stop the work of the wall. He will not be swayed by public misrepresentation. He doesn't ignore it either. He deals with it head on. But he keeps on going with the, with the building of the wall. He keeps on going with spiritual reformation. I don't need to remind many people here in this room that every single one of these tactics has been used by the world against this church. And they have been used by the world against every single gospel church leader in big ways or in small ways. Whether it's an article in a paper or a bulletin on the news or the degrading of a CE president in a student mag, half-truths that get spun and packaged together in a manner that makes the work of the church to be at least inappropriate and at worst a danger to society. And that is exactly the age that we live in. I remember one of the last UCCF team days that I ran here in Edinburgh two years ago, we were talking about the evangelical church in society, and a, and a minister from a large evangelical church in England who was presenting the topic to us turned around at one point in response to a question, and he says this, and I pretty much quote, quote him verbatim from my notes. The evangelical church has moved into a new phase of life in the UK, whereas before it was quaint, tired, but respected... It is now being seen as plainly dangerous. And the greatest attack on her leaders over the next 50 years will be that they are a danger to society and should be removed for the safety of the citizenry. This could have been written yesterday. The leader of a growing church will face public slander. But the hard graft of gospel work continues, which brings us to something far more distressing in some respects the third thing that Nehemiah faces the challenge of religious deception. For the second time, let me just walk through the rest of the chapter from verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, it's likely that Shemaiah was one of the temple priests. Most of the Bible commentators infer from context that he was probably a good friend of Nehemiah, possibly a confidant, a trusted spiritual colleague, if you like. Perhaps Nehemiah is going to him for counsel or for prayer. It's highly possible that beleaguered by the intimidation that surrounds him, Nehemiah goes to support, which makes what happens next all the more devastating. Shemaiah, the priest, says to Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They are coming to kill you by night. Well, Immediately, Nehemiah questions this advice. But, I said, should such a man as I run away? In other words, should Nehemiah, the leader, run from danger to save his own skin? Why? What's going on? Nehemiah knows he should not run scared, but stand firm. So he continues, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah knew that to do so, he would breach Jewish Jewish law by going into a place where only priests were committed to go. Once again, he smells a rat. So he narrates to us what he'd worked out, verse 12. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Those closest to Nehemiah, perhaps people he thought he could really trust, people who were probably co-leaders with him, confidence, all fallen away. This friend, enticed or scared into gospel retreat by the world, and now working for the other side. This is desperate, desperate stuff. You see, it is so true that when the church comes under real pressure, when standing for truth is not easy or even safe, then that is a sifting time. Few are prepared to stand in the breach, and leadership can be very lonely As all around, people compromise on their convictions. Even friends and colleagues of years can buckle and be led astray. As we draw to a close, on the back of all this opposition, what is it today that we need to be most aware of? What does the threat of meaningless dialogue and religious deception look like now? What are the traps of the devil that we really need to watch out for? In our work for the gospel in Chalmers Church, how should we be vigilant? Well, it's true to say, isn't it, that the worst thing that the church faces worldwide is not liberalism as such. That's quite easy to spot. The more difficult thing to deal with is moderatism the voice that comes from a close friend that says, well, I don't agree with them either. But for the sake of unity, we must reason with them. Let's show a united front. We can still work together. We don't need to agree with them, but we can still work in harmony with them. Let's not draw lines. Let's not become divided over the issue of the atonement or the virgin birth or whatever it is. We all believe in one faith, one Lord, one baptism, they might quote, Indeed, let us strain for unity. How many of us have heard that in regards to gospel compromise? No, says Nehemiah. No, says Paul to Timothy. You stand firm. Verse 3 of chapter 6, I am doing a great work. Why should that stop? giving in to these kind of temptations, trying to acquiesce to gospel compromise for the sake of unity between churches, trying to water down what preaching and living out the gospel looks like in our church here in Chalmers would be like Nehemiah abandoning this wall, in days into the plain of Judah to meet with men who hate him and his work. No. No amount of meaningless dialogue or threat or friendly deception will remove me from my post. No amount of ingratiating from preachers of false gospels should steer us here in Chalmers from making clear, clear stands on what the gospel is and how it should be taught. I am doing a great work, says Nehemiah. Why should it stop? What do we do in the light of this? We do 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him and stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is not just for the leaders to hear. Nehemiah is a picture of what the individual involved in gospel work must do. Fight. Be sober-minded. Resist these temptations to stand firm. Chalmers Church, let's not buckle. Don't give in. Don't give an inch. Persevere for the sake of the gospel. But in terms of our leaders, and guys, I can say this a bit more freely than I perhaps could normally, because... Robin's not directly in my line of sight today. But we need to be praying for Robin. We really need to be praying for Robin. We need to be praying for our elders. We need to bear up these people in our prayers every day. Because can you imagine what it would look like if one of us was taken out? Or if the eldership broke apart? Or if a significant leader in Scotland failed? Or if someone who we trusted in the evangelical world compromised? Can you imagine if Nehemiah had given in? Can you imagine if Daniel had compromised? Our church leaders, not just in Scotland, but across the UK, we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for them. Sincerely, deeply. This is a glorious work they are involved in, but it is more bitterly difficult and traumatic than you can ever imagine. Because the work of spiritual reformation and kingdom building is set up against a diabolical enemy who hates them and who hates God more. And the leader will bear the brunt of that more than any of us will ever know. The battle of resolve within the heart and mind of a gospel church leader is colossal. This isn't a game. It is desperately difficult. If you take nothing away from what has been a rambly sermon, take away the fact that we need to be praying for Robin, that we need to be praying for our leaders and elders, that we need to be praying for ourselves in this fight. Living out the gospel here in this room, living out the gospel here in our houses in this city, loving each other well every day. So that we don't fall into disunity and harm gospel progress. Our third point this morning is simply that the work gets finished. Despite all this opposition, the wall is built, verse 16, to the fear of all the nations around us, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The work gets done, but the opposition continues. We see at the end of chapter 6 that Tobiah is still causing havoc. Just because the walls are built, just because a church may have had incredible God-given success and gospel breakthrough, doesn't mean that the opposition stops. It never goes away. But God's work will be complete. It will not fail to be. God will build his church, and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Friends, Stand firm and be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for the incredible example of Nehemiah. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for his resolve, for his love for his people, for his love for you, for his fear of God, for his never seeking to compromise or bend or buckle in the sight of the world and in the sight of real fear. Heavenly Father, may we be like that with each other. Lord, we pray very much for Robin, for the elders, for the staff team, for our leaders um, in this church, in churches around this city, in Scotland, in the UK, in the world. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would protect them, protect their marriages, their families, keep them safe. Lord God, we are very aware this morning in churches around the world, people are not safe. They are very much being taken out literally with their lives. Lord God, we pray for them. Uphold them and maintain gospel work, we pray. Lord, may you use us, may you use this church, may you use us as individuals, as a wonderful example of how gospel work should be done. Not because we are special, but because you are a wonderful God who is here to help us and promises that the work will be finished. Heavenly Father, keep us from failing, we pray. May we resolutely put all our trust and our hope and our plans on you. We pray all these things in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.